Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $131 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic, active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues, Benedict Buckley and Nikita Singhal. Uh, ben and Nikita are portfolio analysts for the ClearBridge Environmental, Social, and Government Investment Programs. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Uh, the topic of today's podcast is investing to deliver value and impact through ESG. Now, I know this is a topic that most investors have been uh, reviewing over the last couple of years, ways that they can feel good about investing and be able to make a healthy profit on top of it. But when I talk to investors, there's a lot of jargon that's thrown out there. Um, I've heard socially responsible investing or SRI, socially aware investing, ESG or environmental, social and governments investing, and then also sustainable investing and impact investing as well. So are all these terms the, the same thing? Uh, ben, maybe you can help us understand what they all mean and how it fits within ClearBridge. Sure. So I completely understand it's very confusing. There's a lot of different terms out there and a lot of them are overlapping. Um, one of the ones you mentioned, socially responsible investing or SRI, is the term that's been around for the longest um, and traditionally re refers to more of a negative screening approach. So that's taking a portfolio, identifying companies that you don't want to have in there, whether that's um, related to things like tobacco or um, alcohol, alcohol or gambling, so-called sin stocks and sort of ex excluding those from the portfolios, really taking sort of a negative approach and that's sort of the, you know, the the price of doing good or aligning it with your values. Okay. So that was the you know the original approach that that existed, um, but actually in more recent years that's sort of been flipped on its head, and there's really been two additional stages that you've seen uh, of this type of investing that's developed. So rather than just having negative screens, there's some um, managers that will actually um, put on positive screens. So they'll be overweighting companies in the portfolio that maybe have positive attributes relating to their environmental performance, their um, social performance, and so on. Kind of best-in-class companies, if you best will. Best-in-class companies and, yeah, overweighting them, tilting the portfolio towards those, maybe companies that have a lower carbon footprint, et cetera. Um, but then there's a third group of um, managers that are actually going beyond uh, these sort of overlay approaches, whether it's negative or positive, and actually including um, research on environmental, social, and governance issues into the uh, fundamental research process. Okay. So rather than overlaying it at the end of end of the rather than overlaying it after the fact, you're actually looking at these issues as part of your investment process and constructing the portfolio with those in mind. So that's the kind of approach that ClearBridge takes. We do use an acronym, I'm afraid. We use ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, as you mentioned. Well, it's a lot shorter than saying all those over and over again. <laughs> so you hear a lot of people refer to ESG. There's overlap with sustainable investing, responsible investing, and so on. Uh, and actually, what's even more confusing is that those things will be used in different ways by different people in the industry. So it's very important for, for those looking at these to really understand not just what word is being used, but what's the actual process that's being described. So in, in talking about the process, you know, uh, what are the benefits of, of looking at those ESG considerations uh, it, from an analyst perspective, Nikita? 
Sure. Um, so with ESG, you know, as, as Ben described, the traditional approach is to really think about it as a values-based approach. And, and yes, that's absolutely true because, you know, we do represent the values of our clients at the end of the day. But in terms of ClearBridge's um, approach to ESG investing, we look at factors that are materially, uh, that are material and economic factors um, impacting the investment and the earnings potential of a company. Okay. So what that means is, you know, you might um, think about fundamental issues that a company faces in the areas of social governance or environmental, and um, they, they would vary depending on the sector. So if you think about a financial services company, uh, how much do you, uh, how much weight would you place upon the recycling that happens at the facilities of that of a commercial bank, for example, versus their fair lending practices or issues that are really material to the business. And so uh, at ClearBridge, because our sector analysts who are doing the fundamental research, they are the ones who are evaluating the environmental, social, and governance issues and thinking about that in the context of risks and opportunities that they can then tie back to their investment thesis. Um, so it's really about having that, uh, let's say two things. One is a business owner's approach, looking for really great businesses that we can own over the long term. And hey, coincidentally, if you're looking at long-term returns, you know, three-year, five-year, 10-year returns, not not necessarily the norm to even today of so-called long-only investors, but if, if that is your op approach, then it ties very well to ESG analysis because there are lots of studies that show that ESG analysis are companies that fare well on the ESG spectrum tend to also be fundamentally strong businesses. So in, in thinking about the long term, I would imagine a lot of these ESG companies who are leaders or best in class uh, tend to outperform um, just because that translates uh, into just a better business model and a better uh, consumer perception of that company. Do you have any examples that that maybe you can share with us that um, are one of these companies that would benefit from that long term trend? Yeah, so there there are certain themes that apply across industries, and then some that are very specific to sectors. Uh, a couple that come in come to mind are um, if you look at the company Costco, love Costco, and, <laughs> Costco, and um, you know st a strong company in terms of their fundam business fundamentals, and they've proven that they can work, uh, they have their business model, of, you know, work, um, and. Uh, Compared to some of the other retail companies, they've taken this unique approach where they really prioritize their customers first, then their employees, and then their shareholders. So we hear a lot about this, you know, shareholder, um, shareholders first or profit maximization. Um, Costco uh, basically uh, has realized that by paying attention to their employees uh, and their customers and serving them first, they're actually serving their long-term performance. And so as an example, they pay some of the highest wages in the retail industry over $20 per hour. And 88% of Costco employees receive health insurance, uh, which is, again, unique for the industry. And some may argue, well, they're doing all this good and it's going to affect their bottom line. Uh, but in the long term, really, they believe, and it's been their experience, so it's proven that happier employees leads to more, um, helps retain loyal customers. It helps attract new ones and, and it eventually leads to, leads to increased sales. Kind of thinking about the, the social issues, uh, gender diversity is one that comes up quite a bit. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and there's been some uh, some really interesting research in the in the last several years about gender diversity. So, uh, Catalyst, an organization, pointed out that on average, firms that have um, 
more women on their on their boards on their board of directors notably have um, better performance and so we're looking at this not just at a you know it, it sounds like a good idea but it's actually higher return on equity higher return on sales and higher return on invested capital so there is this and now there is this research that shows the correlation between higher gender diversity on boards and corporate performance Wow. Um, I wasn't aware of that. That's uh, very interesting. I would, I've never thought to, to even look into the research to, to be able to ascertain that. And I'll throw in one other example. So when you're thinking about ESG, you know, we're often talking about risks that maybe haven't materialized yet, but it's the, the absence of those controversies or incidents that actually is, is you know, the value that's created by, these, by looking at these things. So one example would be uh, Disney. Disney's um, the largest licensor of IP in the world. They're actually that Disney branded products being made in 34,000 factories around the world, um, but not by Disney themselves, but by people they've licensed the Disney brand to. So there's extremely high risk for them of issues that will damage their brand um, by practices in those in those factories. And you know, Disney is a is a company that where brand value is extremely important to them. And obviously, given you know their focus on children and so on, there's increasingly, um, you know, important focus on things like child labor, um, the standards in the factories where these things are being developed. So they have a whole uh, team of people who's working on the ground in the factories to monitor the the, the conditions of the workers and so on. And, um, you know, that team actually reports up to the chief financial officer of the company because they realize that, you know, their whole brand value and, the, you know, the growth of the top line is reliant on the protection of that brand and protection of that reputation. So, that you know, that's something they take very seriously and they see the absence of controversies as the return on investment for that that work. You know, that's really interesting. I was in Disney not too long ago, and I think about Disney and how everybody's so happy at the, the theme parks, but I never thought about translating it to all the way down the supply chain and uh, being able to make sure that work standards are equal uh, no matter which country or what job a Disney employee is doing. And that sort of follows into just um, talking about our approach at Clearbridge, but another common misperception in the field is that if you're doing ESG investing, somehow you're giving up performance. And I think one of the talking about research, you know, as the field starts to gain, has gained tremendous traction and there's more and more interest, uh, there's more research coming out to prove that that's just not the case. So, for example, at a company level, there's there's research by um, uh, Harvard Business School, Oxford University, McKinsey Consultants that basically attest to this idea uh, that I was sharing earlier. Uh, companies that have strong ESG practices, so strong governance, uh, they are committed to the communities that they are a part of, and uh, they have good social practices as as well as um, they're not creating negative externalities in the environment. These kinds of companies actually, um, or for, for another word, we could call them high sustainability com- companies, they've actually had better share price performance over the long term. Um, So there are increasingly more and more studies coming out at a corporate level. And then um, we see that even at a fund level, so as managers now, you know, we're being asked, you know, if we we invest in a fund of high sustainability companies, is there going to be a trade-off? And um, it's very understandable that if you take an exclusionary approach to investing, that is that that can likely happen. And that would be my first thought, right? If you're excluding a lot of the investment universe, your performance is going to suffer. 
And and if you as an investor say, okay, I, I don't want certain sectors and, and I'm, um, I, I think certain sectors are, you know, the, the sin stocks, as Ben talked about earlier, uh, you might end up in, with a portfolio that looks very different from the benchmark and you're, you know, that is going to account for very different performance. Sure. Um, at ClearBridge, because our approach is this integrated approach where we're really focusing on everyday companies in, you know, in the Fortune 500 and the Russell 1000 um, and, and looking at ESG factors that are material to that company, to that sector, you're not going to, you're going to end up with a portfolio that is very representative of what the world is today, but examined for ESG factors and therefore um, examined for risks and opportunities that are linked to that. And it's hard to, uh, you know, sometimes it's harder to to pin down the performance from, you know, when you look at the company performance, as Nikita just said, it's actually very, uh, there's been some academic studies that have shown pretty clearly that there seems to be a positive correlation between take, paying attention to sustainability issues and the performance of the company. When you roll that up to the, the fund level, you're adding another big variable, which is the skill of the individual managers managing that particular portfolio. That's where it becomes even more challenging to, to demonstrate that kind of performance, um, outperformance for those, for, those, um, for those portfolios. But there have been some studies that have tried to do that. Morgan Stanley did a study last year of 10,000 um, mutual funds and 3,000 separately managed accounts. And they found that some of which were ESG portfolios and some of which were not. And they found that the ESG portfolios performed just as well, if not better, than the the uh, underlying portfolios. So wow. they were looking at a whole whole range. And I think that you know there's been a number of people that have said, really, it's not the whether the portfolio is an ESG portfolio or not. It's really you know the style of the of the investors, the perform the the skill of the managers, and so on. There's lots of other factors that really will be the determinants of performance not whether it's ESG or not. With you think about benchmarks and whether you outperform or underperform it, are there special benchmarks that you're using? You know, maybe a good analogy is I'm trying to get better at golf and I'm failing miserably. Um, but playing from the white tees is a lot easier than playing from the black tees like all the professionals do. Um, is that the case? That's a that's a great question. And I think uh, it's sort of testament to how interesting this uh, industry has become or this this. Um, area of ESG investing that you will see uh, indexes uh, mushrooming, indices mushrooming every day. And so there are a bunch of sustainability or ESG oriented indices at, at Clearbridge, again, for the, the, you know, in line with what we've been chatting about, we kind of really think about our investments as just like traditional investments and there's if we do not believe that there will be a performance trade-off then why you're, why compare yourself to a different benchmark right and so we um, all of our strategies our ESG strategies have very low dispersion compared to our you know the uh, traditional strategies uh, if you call it that this we apply the same benchmarks the same fees um, and if and and you look at that in the performance you know if you look at our we we've, we've been doing this for over 30 years now we're one of the oldest ESG practitioners in the field and um, if, you know, if you go back just five years, uh, two out of five of the ESG strategies have actually outperformed the traditional strategies. Um, the third year number for one of our strategies is better. And it sort of really depends on, you know, you can slice and dice it however you want with really the, the key message takeaway being, um, as Ben shared, performance ends up being more a factor of manager selection and underlying style. Uh, whether it's you know value or growth or what kind of market cap you're 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 going after versus it, is it an ESG or a non ESG portfolio? Yeah, thir- thirty years is a long time. I mean, this is a buzzword. I feel like over the last four or five years, but uh, and it's good to know that it's been going on at Clearbridge for a, a much longer period of time, going back to the nineteen eighties. 
Um, with that in mind, though, how does ClearBridge approach ESG investing? You know, what's what's different about ClearBridge's approach versus others? It's really important to note the way that the team is set up at ClearBridge. So there's three people at ClearBridge that have ESG in their job title. But actually the ESG analysis... I'm sitting with two of them. And you're sitting with two of them right here. <laughs> but the analysis, the ESG analysis and the portfolio construction is actually done by the majority of the in- entire investment team. So all of the sector analysts, we have a team of over a dozen sector analysts that each focus on a particular group of companies. Um, each of them is reviewing the ESG criteria for the companies that they cover. And it gets very specific because these issues are not the same whether you're talking about a healthcare company or a financial sector company or an energy company. So of course. The, the material issues are very, very different and the kind of issues that our analysts are focusing on will change dramatically depending on you know what kind of companies they're looking at. So it's, it's done firm-wide. Um, each of the analysts is actually uh, reviewed on the, the quality of their ESG analysis. It's part of their uh, review and compensation system. Um, and they have an internal rating system where for every company that an analyst is recommending, every stock that they are suggesting the portfolio managers should should buy for their portfolios, they'll not only be doing their you know traditional fan, fan, fundamental analysis, they'll actually be also assessing it from an ESG perspective uh, and communicating that in terms of uh, an overall ESG rating for the company. So that's demonstrating to the portfolio managers in one simple um, coded uh, rating all the information that's going into that rating, and there'll be lots of different factors they're looking at. You know, they're all looking at things like governance, but then you know there'll be environmental issues will really not be that relevant for say some of the healthcare companies or a financial sector company, uh, and really will be the drivers um, for a, for example an energy company. Um, so one example um, of a recent stock that was recommended by one of the analysts is um, Pioneer Natural Resources. So that's an energy company. It's an oil and gas company that has um, a lot of activity down in the Permian Basin in Texas. Um, and water is a key issue that our energy analyst looks at when he's talking about um, environmental, social and governance issues as, how, as they relate to the, the business model of these companies. So um, they actually have a differentiated water sourcing strategy as a, as a company. They've actually signed a deal with the, uh, the city of Midland in Texas um, for over $100 million where they are using the wastewater from the city in their operations and that's helping them avoid using fresh water and compete with other sources for that water. Um, it's actually reducing costs for the company um, and it's securing them a water supply for the next 20 plus years. Interesting. Um, so that's sort of, a, you know, it's a win for the company because it's lower costs and it's more secure. It's a win for the uh, the local community and a win for the environment because it's avoiding that drawdown of, of the water in an area where given the amount of um, oil and gas activity in the Permian, there's going to be increasing uh, water stress issues there. So that was, you know, Part of uh, his investment thesis for the company that was included in the write-up that he did for the portfolio managers, and that was you know enabled them to know whether or not it was uh, a company that would be interesting for the ESG portfolios at Clearbridge. And I think that's interesting having an energy company uh, part of an ESG strategy. I think you know based on those exclusionary types of ESG strategies, they wouldn't look at energy in particular. But here's a great example of an energy company that's doing right by the environment. Um, and they're trying to to make the environment a better place to extract their their resources. Yeah, and I think that you know having the 
the fundamental analysts who cover these companies doing the ESG analysis is really crucial to us because these are guys and girls who know the companies incredibly well. A lot of them have well over 10 years, some, some many, many decades of experience of covering these companies. They have relationships with the management teams and the investor relations. And they're the ones that are really able to understand what are the really material environmental, social and governance issues and what, quite frankly, is not material for that company and therefore doesn't sway their their, their view of the company and, and the investment thesis. And, you know, having those discussions with them and having that be part and uh, parcel of their just overall research process makes a lot of sense for us. And I think is really, in our view, the only way of doing this sustainably over time. You mentioned something that I, I found was interesting, that it's... Uh you have a regular analyst that is doing ESG considerations. Um, so kind of doing both of, of best worlds. Is that typical in a, a company like Clearbridge, uh, who's a larger money manager? I think it's very unusual. We don't know of, of many others that are doing it this way. I think there's a lot where you have, you know, a separate team of ESG analysts that are doing, you know, great work and working with the other with the other teams. But, you know, being on the ground day to day at a manager, we see how important it is for that to be the same person and coming, you know, drawing all that t- information together to come to one final conclusion on a stock versus having two, you know, two different sides that are battling it out. And it's also important to note that, you know, this is being done, um, you know, as part of the research process. So it's not like you're constructing a portfolio and then reweighting it based on some sort of ESG score or something that is then ending up with a portfolio that's not balanced in the way the way that the portfolio managers intended it. So it's done, you know, as part of the process and hopefully gets us to a better result at the end of the day. Now a big goal here for a lot of investors, quite frankly, is to feel good about investing, um, but also making an impact. And when you think about public equities, uh, stocks aren't necessarily con- usually considered and as an asset class from a lot of investors' perspective. Um, you know, why is this the case and what are investors overlooking about the impact of potentially investing in public equities? Um, sure. So, you know, for, for the longest time, I think, you know, most of us, I mean, me included, we tend to think about the world in this black and white fashion. You know, you have corporates that are the economic engines of the world, and then you have philanthropy that's really solving the world's uh, hardest problems. And um, and then there's this ideology where you can make money with one pocket and then you do good with the other. Um, but over the last couple of decades and much more so in the last few years, the you know, people are starting to understand that, you know, there is a strong interaction between the two, these two worlds, and you might be in a situation where your investments might be creating the very problems that your grant making and your charity is trying to solve. Sure. And so is there a way that you can marry the two where without sacrificing financial returns, you can actually have your money in line with your values? And that's, you know, a very powerful concept. Um, The idea then, the question then comes up, like you mentioned, you know, well, but can we can do that maybe through certain kinds of investments, investing in a a microfinance institution uh, that serves women in India or a um, a, a small business um, loans to um, basket weavers in Africa. Um, But can we actually achieve that by investing in a Microsoft or a Google? Like, how is that impact? And, and the way we like to think about it is that it's at the end of the day, um, the communities that we live in are largely influenced at, at an enterprise level. It's people who are working through these enterprises that are influencing communities, regardless of the tax status. So regardless of whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, you're impacting the community in a positive or negative way. And I'll give you some more examples and the way we think about it. Okay. So one is if you think about a company 
companies end product in and of itself or their service is that of impact to the community. And one um, example I can think about is there's an LED lighting company that we own in one of our funds. Um, and um, LED lighting products are expected to reduce the consumption of electrical energy by more than 30%. Right. Now, when more than 20% of the world's electricity consumption comes from lighting products, you're looking at a net 6% reduction in just electricity consumption by moving from LED from non-LED or incandescent bulbs to your LED lighting. And a lot less times having to change the light bulbs, of course. Yep. And that factors into the, the economics. And so it's a great economic case and it's a great environmental case because the energy savings, it's it's it's, you know, at conservative projections lead to almost $30 billion of savings. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, there's a company that's their product is having a direct impact on the environment. You know, one area that, that interests me, at least on, on this front um, of a product or service that can potentially change the world, at least from an environmental perspective, is electric vehicles. Uh, I had the pleasure of driving an electric vehicle the other day, and I, I think there's a little bit of a negative connotation on them, but uh, they were ex very quick. Uh, you had instant torque. Uh, better handling. I was actually quite impressed. And uh, if you think about the U.S. here, we only have a 1% adoption rate of electric vehicles. But I think with Tesla coming out with the Model 3 at a price point that's very competitive with internal combustion engines, I think this may be like the iPhone uh, when Apple originally launched the iPhone's moment for EV. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when when we are, like you said, on the early side of the adoption curve, but when electric vehicles actually do end up displacing our traditional internal combustion engines, I think, you know, the demand for oil is likely to dramatically shift um, and global coal consumption has already peaked. So based if you look at current forecasts for EV adoption, um, the sale of uh, pure combustion engines could peak by 2020 and resulting in oil demand peaking as early as the next decade. And, you know, we kind of all know that the burning of fossil fuels, so oil, coal, gas, uh, they're a pretty major contributor to climate change. So by investing in, in companies that are... Um, across the value chain in electric vehicles, right? So when we think about electric vehicles at, at Clearbridge, um, we're not just thinking about it from a Tesla standpoint, but really breaking down the whole value chain. So you're thinking about uh, the lithium lithium that goes into the batteries or the cobalt, then the actual battery itself, the engine, maybe the auto parts that go into this new kind of vehicle, and really thinking across the value chain on what those opportunities that's going to present. And the, the really exciting thing is that um, you know, we've, we've talked about the, the impact of, of, of these um, companies and the products that they have. Uh, but if you look at these, even these themes, and they're sort of like secular themes, uh, there's a really great uh, research piece done by, by Goldman where they talk about, you know, if you look at the three broad themes, LED lighting, uh, renewable energy, so solar and wind in particular, and then electric vehicles, these three themes alone could impact more than 25% of the broad market across the, the, you know, the universe of stocks uh, impacting, you know, trillions of dollars in market cap just over the next decade. Wow. That's a big number. And if you think about the, you know, the research process at Clearbridge, so, you know, it's being done by the fundamental analysts that cover the companies and actually our energy analysts, one of our generalists and our utilities analysts actually teamed up a while back to do um, a piece on electric vehicle adoption. And they looked at, you know, 
how disruptive technologies have been adopted in the past and the speed with which that can happen once it reaches that tipping point. And so they did some scenario. The, the S-curve, right? The S-curve, the famous S-curve. So they did some analysis to look at, well, you know, what if EVs are indeed indeed adopted on an S-curve like the microwave was and the fridge was and the mobile phone was. And then they looked at, you know, how that would impact all three of their sectors and the and the interactions there. So that's something, you know, discussions that are actively going on with the, with the teams and sort of shows so why it's so important for that, to have that being the the same analyst looking at it from both an environmental perspective, but as well as a, as a you know, investment perspective. So we, we talked about companies that are making products or services that can make an impact. Is there any other ways that you, you maybe think about this? And, and absolutely. And, you know, those companies that are actually uh, much fewer relative to all the other companies where there isn't a direct impact necessarily. Right. So when you like I said, you talk about Microsoft or Google um, and we, we try and think about the impact that they are inherently having by virtue of their supply chains and the, the, the employees that they hire. So if you think, uh, if for example, for if you think about Unilever, um, you know, they're, they're a company that is um, producing all kinds of products from toothpaste to, um, you know, cereal. Like it's just all, every product, consumer product that you can think of. And... Um, a lot of people uh, will try and break down their supply chain and think about how do we, for example, impact small farmers around the world. And you can do that at a small scale, but by investing in a company like Unilever, Unilever engages with over half a million uh, smallholder farmers all over the world. Half a million. Half a million. And and has worked with them to, you know, clean up those supply chains, make sure there's just labor policies. And so there's the real opportunity to impact at scale with public equities. Um, and Unilever is one great example. We, you know, we talked about Costco earlier. Um, another important piece of this is uh, the companies themselves having an impact, but our ability as investors to um, encourage and, and advocate for more impact. The engagement. The engagement. And that is, I think, um, a very important piece at ClearBridge uh, and, and very much uh, integrated with our business model. And so what I mean by that is because we are long-term holders, we are active owners, and we have um, small portfolios that are, you know, high conviction, concentrated portfolios, we often end up being the top 10, 20 shareholder of, of these large companies. And what that means is that when when we're invite when we invite them to our offices and we want to talk about gender diversity or uh, a certain um, human rights issue that we're seeing in the marketplace um, or an environmental issue that you know an energy company might be facing, uh, they're going to listen. And so it's very different from being part of an organization that is um, that is needed, you know, maybe a nonprofit or an organization that can um, generate interest and excitement around an, a story. We, we think that's very much needed. Our role as investors is we kind of work more quietly behind the scenes in, um, in partnership with companies over long periods of time to actually uh, create impact. And we've, we've heard from companies anecdotally that, you know, after having worked with a number of companies for over the years, we've sort of done a look back with them and they've said, you know, we, we for example, engaged a technology hardware company on climate change and water related issues for their facilities in, in China. And um, they ended up setting some reduction targets and, and have moved to recycling a lot of the water there and so on. Um, but when we spoke to them in hindsight, looking back at that at that engagement process, they said, you don't understand how important it was for us to have one of our top share owners like Clearbridge 
asking these questions of our investor relations and of our management team. And that gets taken back to the teams and really gives them the impetus internally to work on this when they can say, look, our top share owners are asking about this. Um, we had the same thing with a steel company we worked with on some supply chain issues that they had been accused of in, in Brazil. Um, and they had some advocates um, chasing them down relate, related to some of their practices there and in, you know, many tiers down in the supply chain that they weren't even aware of at the time. But when we got involved and said, look, this really is something you should be taking seriously, that changed the conversation for them because they know that we're a trusted partner of theirs. We're one of the largest share owners in their company. Our you know, primary objective of owning the shares is to do well for our clients. We don't have any ulterior motives there. Uh, and we're long-term investors that are going to stick in there. We're not looking for quick wins. So, you know, we have those, you know, very much aligned incentives and therefore we can work with them to try and try and move some of these issues forward where we think it's relevant. Well, I would imagine in, in this space, the long-termism or being long-term investors, building that relationship with management is, is so essential in order to actually impacting change or affecting change. You know, if you're only invested in a company for a year or two years, um, I, I think it would be hard to actually affect change and, and get management to listen to what your concerns are and actually execute on that. Yeah, and I think that, you know that's baked into the the compensation structure at Clearbridge. I mean, you know, three and five year performance for the um, funds accounts for ninety percent of the incentive compensation of our portfolio managers. Uh, one year performance accounts for just ten percent. Um, so there, that you know, their um, financial incentives are aligned with being longer term, and at least ten percent of their compensation has to go into their own fund invest over four years. So you know, they're not looking to invest quarter by quarter. We're looking for for long term investments, and as you say, these are issues that really tend to play out over the over a matter of years, not a matter of you know quarters. I know we've talked about a lot of the, I don't know, evergreen issues that we've seen in the industries over the last couple of years. Is there maybe any emerging themes that our, our PMs or analysts have been discussing recently? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a number of things that come up. Uh, one thing actually that came up just a couple of days ago uh, that's been a topic of ours for, for a long time now has been, you know, data security and privacy within the the technology space, especially, particularly the social media space. So um, Facebook actually had their earnings call a couple of days ago and Mark Zuckerberg was speaking a lot about the investments that Facebook's going to do to protect the community that relates to, you know, fake news, um, protecting um, online bullying, etc. And, you know, that's something they're taking incredibly seriously. And while that is, you know, he went on the earnings call and was very upfront that that's going to be a, somewhat of a hit to short-term uh, profitability. We think that's the right long-term decision for them to be making. I mean, they have such an important role in the social media community. There's all sorts of other issues. I mean, our international growth team has been thinking a lot about labor issues in Turkey, for example. So there's a lot of Syrian refugees that have come across the border into Turkey and are actually working in the garment industry in Turkey. Um, a lot of the um, apparel manufacturers or apparel companies, I should say, that that we look at in the international growth space um, source some of their um, clothes from, from Turkey. So that's an issue that we've been talking to, for example, Inditex about, which is the parent company of Zara. Okay. Um, you know, how are they um, dealing with this issue? That's a, you know, it's a really sort of um, a wicked problem that they have of uh, trying to understand, you know, how you manage a supply chain when you have so many undocumented workers flooding that country's market. So they have, you know, lots of people on the ground in in Turkey trying to trying to work on these issues, making sure that labor standards are kept up to scratch. Um, trying to, you know, it's not a simple issue as sort of saying no, you know, these people can't work. They all need to have a livelihood. But how are you doing that in a way that's responsible and, you know. 
when you tie that back to the investment case, it's, you know, again, it's protecting the brand of the company, but it's also doing right by the people, you know, on the ground. Yeah, it's an ever-changing world. You know, the importance of being an active investor is that things will pop up, business models will change, and, you know, that just reaffirms the need of active managers to be able to assess those changes and and try to implement some impact um, from a financial perspective. Um, But that's all the time that we have today. Uh, Nikita, Ben, thank you so much for, for joining me here. And um, thank you, everybody, for for joining in. I hope uh, you've uh, learned a little bit about our ESG process and and how we view the world here at ClearBridge. Uh, We hope that you, you tune in for the next podcast. Thanks again and goodbye. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of November 3rd, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the use of this information. 